Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government at Harvard University and co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, How Democracies Die. The book, published in 2018, draws on decades of research and a wide range of historical and global examples to argue that democracies do not die because of revolutions or military coups, but due to a slow weakening of the critical institutions and the erosion of political norms. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's a pleasure. So, Stephen, the first question I often ask my guests is usually something like, how is your spirit? But in this case, I want to broaden it and ask, how is the spirit of American democracy? I'm going to answer uh, with a couple of prongs. I think it depends at the, the altitude from which you, you look. I think in the, in the short run, without a, a sort of larger historical look, things look pretty bleak. And I think the next five or 10 years will be very difficult. Uh, there is a, a powerful authoritarian reaction to the emergence of what Daniel and I call multiracial democracy. And that reaction is, is likely to lead us to pretty serious constitutional crisis in the years to come. Not certainly, but, but there's a high risk of that. The people who say the last election was stolen, which it clearly was not, are now planning on stealing the next two. That's, that's pretty obvious, very clear. And if they do that, Inauguration Day, January 20th, 2025, is going to be really a milestone for, in fact, for whether we have saved democracy or not. And that's coming up on us pretty quickly. It's hard to steal an election. It's hard in the United States to steal an election. I think you're right. I mean, there's clear evidence that a number of Republicans in many states are putting in place the infrastructure to steal the election and that there is a willingness on the part of a big chunk of the Republican Party to steal an election. If you'd asked me a decade ago, I never thought I would say these words, but there is a real risk of a stolen election in 2024, in which case the, um, we could be inaugurating a, at least a soft authoritarian regime, certainly a non-democratic regime in 2025. That said, I think it's important to remember that this is a long game. So even in that worst case scenario, a horrible scenario in which the 2024 election is stolen, there, there are many rounds of this. And that doesn't mean that's not the end. It's a terrible outcome, but it is not the end. And small D Democrats from across the spectrum are going to have to continue to struggle for democracy between now and 2022 election, between 2022 and 2024, and after 2024. This is going to be the struggle for multiracial democracy, the struggle to politically defeat ethno-nationalist forces in this country is uh, it's not going to take one election. It's not one law. It's going to be a struggle that that may well take more than a decade. So we we need to fight to protect these elections, and many of us are doing that the best we can, build coalitions, uh, challenge a party that doesn't accept any more of the peaceful transfer of power. Apart from the role of religion, which I think will be cr- crucial here, whether evangelical leaders stand up and Catholic bishops do and all the rest, we have bad examples around the world of 
when the church uh, uh, submitted, uh, is com- was complicit in authoritarian rule, and when the church stood up at, at other places. But what is the spiritual ethos <laughs> that we need for democracy? Oof. That is a great question, Jim, and um, it's one that I think you're probably a lot closer to the answer to than I am. You know, the, the, the civil rights movement is an example of a long struggle. That, that was not one year or one election. That was a decades-long struggle. And as you know very well, religion was played a huge role in sustaining the civil rights movement. It was ecumenical, but it was primarily Black Christians, that's just, it was, um, Black Christian churches that sustain the movement. The, the challenge now, and I, I hate to sort of finish on a, a somewhat depressing note, but the, the challenge now is this is a much, this, is a, this has to be a really diverse coalition that saves democracy and that brings us to a 21st century multiracial democracy. It's going to be pretty secular, obviously not entirely secular. It's going to be pretty it's going to include many, many secular Americans, different ages, although it'll be, it'll be pretty young, uh, but many, multiple generations, multiple religions, and multiple races. And that's really hard. Social movements are easiest to build and sustain among relatively homogeneous groups. And what we're talking about, what we need today, what we're going to have to call upon, is the opposite of that. It's an extraordinarily heterogeneous group. Trumpism and the authoritarian forces that threaten us represent, I obviously overgeneralize a little bit, but they, 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 they represent the, a white Christian reaction. And what democratic, small d democratic forces represent is everybody else in the society. And that's a really heterogeneous group. You're right in posing the question that we need some kind of an ethos, some, something to to bind us and inspire us, but that's going to be really challenging. So finding the threads that unite the, 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 med, the multiplicity of components of this new multiracial democratic coalition is a great challenge. And I've got to say, frankly, I don't, I don't have the answer sitting here today. Stephen, you've written about the importance of political parties. You've been, been an expert on that for years in being parties, being gatekeepers. I love that gatekeepers, the first line of defense against autocrats. So in that light, I'm wondering about your thoughts on the recent resolution from the Republican National Committee in which they followed Donald Trump's line of reasoning and referred to the insurrection of January 6th as, as they called it, amazingly, legitimate political discourse, and then censured two Republicans who are helping to investigate the insurrection. I'm wondering what was running through your mind when you read about that resolution. Well, what was running through my mind, in fact, was a comparison, uh, an unhappy comparison to uh, France in 1934. Uh, There was a a, a riot, an effort to storm the parliament, some real parallels to um, January 6th. And what we find is that when political parties, when mainstream political parties of the center right and center left close ranks behind democracy, defense of democratic institutions, and unambiguously, loudly denounce violence and denounce assaults on democratic institutions, democracies tend to survive. Uh, and I think this points to a, to a bigger problem and, and probably the area in which 
I think uh, Dan and Dan and I got it kind of most wrong in how democracies die or where things are much worse than we anticipated. We did not view when we wrote how democracies die in 2017, we did not view the Republican Party as an authoritarian party. We blamed it for failed gatekeeping, as you mentioned. We blamed it for having dropped the ball and allowed uh, an authoritarian demagogue to to have the party's nomination. But we didn't view the party as a whole as an anti-democratic force. In fact, we wrote and we were wrong uh, that that we thought there'd be a faction within the party, particularly in the Senate, that would be able and willing to draw a line and, and contain Trump. As we all know, that that faction very quickly disappeared, and the, the Trumpist takeover of the party was much more rapid, much more thoroughgoing than we anticipated. And what you, the example you point to, the, the recent uh, RNC decision, is an example, um, not the first, unfortunately, but a clear example that the Republican Party has has transformed itself really from top to bottom into an anti-democratic force. It's a whole new situation when one party uh, no longer is is standing for democracy uh, as a party. That's that's a dangerous shift, as you point out. Absolutely, it, it's a, it's a telltale sign, and it, particularly in a two party system, if one of the political parties is not committed to democracy, it is really difficult to sustain democracy. As bad as January six was, you note in your book that those kinds of violent insurrections aren't often the key factor in overturning democracies. More often, you're right, democracies slowly, they erode slowly in barely visible steps. Uh, And what are, I guess, what are some of the signs of that erosion that you think are most important now in in American democracy? Well, in the the case of the United States, it is, we're following a a path of slightly different from some other cases in that, thankfully, and very positively, uh, the elected autocrat was removed from office in 2020-2021. So Trump had four years in power in which he was uh, uh, through a lot of punches at democratic institutions. Some of them landed, some of them didn't. But four years, given the, the strength of our state and, and democratic institutions, the, the, the amount of damage that Trump could do was considerable, but it, it wasn't fatal. And so Trump did begin, uh, did follow the, the authoritarian playbook in a bunch of ways, particularly his politicization of a wide range of governmental institutions and, uh, and his effort to turn what are supposed to be neutral government agencies into weapons for his own personal and partisan, in some cases, anti-democratic use, whether it's the State Department. Uh, or the the Defense Department, or the intelligence agencies, the FBI, Trump pretty systematically tried to turn these agencies into political weapons. And had he had eight years in office, he would have gone much further in in that transformation. First of all, Donald Trump was, as, as you know, the first incumbent president in the history of the U.S. Republic not to accept defeat and to try to overturn uh, an election result. So I really strongly recommend uh, your book to all of our listeners. You outline indicators of authoritarian behavior. First, number one, rejection of the democratic rules of the game. Right. So it's, uh, again, in, in, in a democracy, it is essential that all of the major players play by democratic rules, accept democratic rules, and when they lose by those rules, accept the outcome. So you, you parties must be willing 
to accept the results of elections, whatever those results are, assuming that elections are free and fair. I like what our friend John Meacham says about this. He says, democracy depends on our treating each other as neighbors, as neighbors and not as enemies. Right. This is a, this is a basic one. Um, and escalating political violence is a, is historically been a killer of democracies. All of the major democratic breakdowns in Europe in the 20s and 30s in South America in the 1960s and 70s were preceded by rising paramilitary violence. And that paramilitary violence in every one of these cases, whether it's Italy in the 20s, Germany and Spain in the 30s, Brazil in the 60s, Uruguay and Argentina in the 70s, every single one of these cases, paramilitary groups, perpetrators of violence, assassinations, bombings, street attacks, intimidation, all of these were uh, sometimes encouraged, condoned, justified, or at least tolerated by mainstream politicians. And again, we saw this with Trump's language on the campaign trail in 2016, 2015. Uh, and that was a warning sign. We should have seen this is a guy willing to, uh, to, to wink at violence, even to encourage violence. And in fact, that's what he did. He said, if you beat up those guys, I'll, I'll pay your legal bills. <laughs> that is explicitly encouraging violence. And he did that consistently in his presidency. I remember being shocked when my own home state of Michigan, when when in, in Lansing, the Capitol got surrounded by these these militiamen. And Donald Trump, if I recall correctly, tweeted uh, favorably, liberate Michigan. So in 2020, we had the biggest voter turnout since, I think, 1900, and most especially the biggest voter turnout of black and brown voters. So this is... Uh, this is a strategy uh, by by conservatives or some to protect one party rule and let's call it what, what it is, white minority rule, and prevent America from becoming what you're calling a true multiracial democracy. How and when did this, what you call electoral reengineering, become part of the GOP agenda? Early 21st century. I mean, what what has happened, or at least our understanding of what has happened is that a, a series of changes occurred in the U.S. party system beginning in, in the mid-1960s. Uh, basically, three things have happened since 1965. First of all, the civil rights legislation uh, led to this massive migration of uh, Southern whites from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, the same time that, in many cases, newly enfranchised African Americans joined the Democratic Party. So civil rights sort of we shuffled the, the, the party system. At the same time, the, the country's experienced a large-scale wave of immigration since the mid-1960s. Most of those immigrants and their kids have ended up in the Democratic Party. Uh, and third, um, beginning with the, uh, with the Reagan leadership in the late 70s, early 80s, the uh, evangelical Christian community, which was really split between the parties, even slightly more democratic in the 1970s, has become overwhelmingly Republican. And not only that, but white Christians are, are a unique group. They're not anybody. They, they really are the founding group in the United States, and they dominated every social, cultural, economic, political hierarchy in this country for two centuries. And that's being challenged, being challenged numerically in that white Christians are a declining share of the electorate. And it's being challenged by a, a more racially and ethnically uh, diverse and egalitarian society in the 21st century. 
So that's a huge threat. That creates a, a, a perceived threat to both uh, the Republican base and Republican leaders. And these efforts to tinker with electoral rules, make it harder to vote. And, and this, is, this is a reaction to a party that fears losing. When a party can't lose in a democracy, uh, democracy is in trouble. I like your clarity here on this point because sometimes people say, well, this uh, danger of a strongman, a charismatic, narcissistic strongman, all these things may be factors. There's a real historical moment here. The anti-democratic movement has been fueled by America's efforts to achieve racial equality, and our society is growing more and more diverse. So the underlying factor here is not just polarization per se, but indeed you mentioned the white evangelicals, my own background and tradition. Most of white Christians voted for Donald Trump, evangelicals more than most. Behind the polarization is racism, and let's call it white Christian nationalism. That is why we are, uh, as a society, in the midst of a political earthquake. I remember the North Carolina court ruled on this sort of monster voter suppression and they put, uh, the act they put forward. It said it's surgically targeted. Yeah. Um, I mean, what we, what we call constitutional hardball is an effort to... Um, Stay within the letter of the law, but outright subvert its spirit. And most of the electoral reforms, both efforts to suppress the vote and even efforts to overturn the vote, are exactly in this area. I'd like you to comment on the big uh, debate we had here in Washington around protecting voting rights. And you said it was unwise, a mistake for Senate Democrats not to lift the filibuster. Look, there, there's a lot of mythology around the filibuster. It's somehow considered a, a sort of sacred um, part of our constitutional checks and balances. Uh, but a couple of things are important to point out. First of all, the, the, the founders explicitly opposed anything like a supermajority rule in the legislature. The supermajority rule is, is that it's some that you would need 60 or 67 votes in the Senate, in a 100-person Senate, to pass regular le- legislation. That, that a, any, any mechanism that allows a partisan minority to permanently block regular legislation backed by a majority, that's something that, that Madison and Hamilton and other founders explicitly rejected. It was never put in the Constitution. It was never self-consciously placed in the Senate rules. The only rule that allowed a majority in the Senate to shut off debate was sort of accidentally removed from the Senate rules uh, in in the early part of the 19th century. But even then, for more than 100 years, for 150 years, this, this rule, this ability of a partisan minority to thwart permanently the will of a legislative majority Politicians in the United States realized that that was a really powerful, dangerous, and really undemocratic weapon. So it was used with forbearance. It was used with restraint from the 1830s and 40s all the way until the latter part of the 20th century. It was rarely used. There was an average of one filibuster a year between 1917 and 1970. Only in the last few decades has the filibuster been used routinely. For legislation. So only now it has become a supermajority rule. 
Now, the other thing about the, the, the filibuster is that no other existing democracy on earth has a rule that allows a partisan minority to permanently block legislation backed by a majority. That is an undemocratic rule. And so all of this, this, this going on and on about how important it is for our democracy to preserve the filibuster, I actually think it would be important for our democracy to eliminate the filibuster. And it's certainly not worth not taking steps to preserve voting rights on the altar of, of, of this undemocratic rule. Well, you actually, you and your co-author, uh, Daniel Ziblatt, were invited to a, a lunch with the Democrats before all this vote was taken to talk about this very thing. You can't tell us everything that happened in that meeting in details, but what did you take away from that conversation and where are we now with this problem? There are a handful of, I'm not going to name any names, but a, a handful of senators were quite aware of the, the threat before us and really very, very impressively engaged with this. But my overarching view is that our politicians, even some politicians who I admire, who I think are very good and thoughtful, hardworking politicians, have not yet come to grips with the fact that the House is on fire, that our democracy is directly threatened, and that if we don't behave as if that there is a crisis, if we don't sort of step outside of the box of normal politics, we will lose, or at least we are at risk of losing our democracy. E- even some of our better senators are not there. They're just not there. They're still engaged in normal politics. And my fear is if they don't get outside the box, they're, they're just not going to act to save our democracy. Well, let's let's focus then. Let's take that as a great segue to what we can do. How citizens in other democracies have successfully prevented or resisted elected autocrats or why they tragically failed to do so. What do we do now to recognize the crisis? What do we do? Oh, boy, if I had the answer to that question, I think I would have a, a better paying job. Really, the first line of defense is is politicians, is democratic elites. I would say also business elites, religious elites. Elites are the first line of defense. There's some reason for concern that our, that our business leaders, our political leaders, our religious leaders are not sufficiently aware of the crisis or not responding quickly enough. So the second line of defense is, is, is societies, organized society. And um, that's hard. I mean, collective mobilization, social movements are hard to form. They're hard to sustain. People don't have the, the time and they don't often have the energy given uh, the, the economic circumstances now, given the pandemic. It's very, very difficult. But it may well be social mobilization and a social movement in, in defense of democracy, but maybe more than that, maybe in search of multiracial democracy. You know, the, 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 the people who brought us democracy, real democracy, full democracy in the United States, it was a civil rights movement. It was, it was a civil rights movement, that it, which was a, a, a mass citizen movement um, that, that got us finally across the line to full democracy in the, in the 1960s. We, we tend even to forget about this these days. It wasn't that long ago that we saw, the, the, in many respects, the biggest social movement, or certainly the biggest protest movement in the history of the U.S. Republic, the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a, a multiracial, predominantly young movement um, 
in, in essence, in defense of multiracial democracy. I think it may take a, a remobilization of, of that coalition to save our democracy. Um, there, there's a pretty good amount of evidence um, looking at democracies in crisis that democracies get saved when you get the, cre- the, the, the formation of a broad, multi-ideological, multi-party coalition in defense of democracy. And that, that can certainly involve people on the streets, but it may just involve political elites. And that's why I think um, the inclusion and the role of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney on the January 6th Commission is very important. Uh, the sort of who lines up behind the eventual findings and report of the January 6th Commission is extremely important so that there is so that Americans are shown a broad coalition that extends way beyond the blue states and, and, and Democrats and progressives and includes a, uh, a wide swath of, of American citizens saying we need to reject violence and defend democracy. Well, the hopeful sign uh, is you just named what I'm feeling around the country that people we're, what we're calling for is, in fact, uh, multi-faith, including no faith at all, secular people, because religion has no monopoly on morality. Multi-faith, multiracial, and multi-generational in particular. And that's being named and lifted up all over the country, state by state. And that's the kind of movement, the only kind of movement that can really save us now. And uh, you've laid a real powerful foundation for that in this conversation, so I'm very grateful to you. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. To hear more from Stephen Levitsky, you can read his book, How Democracies Die, which is a sobering and important read, but I would say the foundation for the new movement that's now afoot. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all. Thank you.